Welcome to the Two Tall Jews Show, presented by the On This Day in Jewish History Instagram account, and brought to you by Best Shop Productions. We are both tall, we are Jews, and we are ready to go. Welcome to the show. As always, the Two Tall Jews Show is brought to you by Best Shop Productions. For all your video marketing solutions, go to bestshopproduction.com and get a quote on your next video project today. On today's show, we are incredibly excited to be with Ben Freeman. Originally from Glasgow, Scotland, Ben is a gay Jewish Zionist author and educator focusing on Jewish identity, combating anti-Semitism, and raising awareness of the Holocaust. His work aims to inspire, empower, and educate both Jews and non-Jews all over the world. In the early part of 2021, Ben will be releasing his first book called Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People. Ben currently calls Hong Kong home as the head of humanities at an international school while lecturing part-time at different universities. The self-proclaimed bear Jew, Ben, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Happy to have you. It's been a long time coming. Before we get started, and this is a question we really ask all our guests, is uh, to understand if this is still just a two-tall Jew show, how tall are you? I'm 5'9", so not very tall. Well, I think that's, that's tied. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so you're, you're almost up there. So your background is as a historian, right, with a specialty in the Holocaust. And, and recently, this is how I came in contact with you via Twitter, you became very active mm. online. So mm. how has the education work that you do online differed from the goals in the classroom? Like, obviously, you weren't really prepared. Your formal education didn't prepare you for what you've dealt with online. So how, how has that differed? That's a really good question. I think um, the delivery is different because in a classroom, you get, you know, an hour, an hour and a half. And the classes that I teach last three months and they last an hour and a half every day. So you can really kind of do a deep dive into specific subjects. So when, for example, I teach a class on the Holocaust, I am able to really spend like a month um, giving historical context. And online, the nature of online is different. It's kind of much more rooted in sound bites, much more rooted in grabbing attention, which, you know, is important. And you guys are online, so you kind of know the game. But it does kind of concern me a little bit that some of the nuance is being lost. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the reception, you know, well, I don't get abuse in the classroom, basically. So my students are always encouraged to challenge and to ask questions. But um, yeah, the, the abuse that I've received online has been kind of staggering. Although I will say that as a man, the abuse that I've received is kind of nothing compared to the abuse the Jewish women uh, receive kind of on a daily basis. But yeah, so I think those are the two major differences. It's the delivery is obviously different because you're, it's a soundbite essentially. You're trying to grab people's attention, which really right. changes how you approach it. Yeah. And that's, that's also why we started the podcast because obviously, you know, the On This Day in Jewish History is amazing and and a lot, but a lot of it is just a caption and an image, and there's there's so much that doesn't fit in the 2,200 characters. So we we created this show that so we're able to go deeper into the different things that we talk about. Absolutely, and I think that you know, education. I always see it as the first form of activism, but that means it has to be quality education. It can't just be kind of as you say, an Instagram post, and then someone is an expert on X, Y, or Z. People really need to spend time doing the work. 
Um, and I think that is something that's really important. You know, it's great that people can, you know, learn about Jewish history through On This Day in Jewish History or kind of learn about things from my accounts or others. But that is the first step. I, don't th I think that people must remember that that is not the end of their journey. It's just the beginning of it. Sort of a follow-up to that. So the UK had a big issue with s systemic anti-Semitism from the left with the rise of Corbyn recently. We've seen you and Eve Barlow warn American Jews of something similar happening yeah. here. So what can we do uh, to best uh, approach this incoming mm. storm? Well, thank you so much for asking that question because it has been difficult, you know, experiencing Corbynism. I joined Twitter in 2018 specifically to join the fight against Corbyn and it was awful. You know, yeah. the British Jewish community, I think much like the American Jewish community, felt at home and felt relatively safe and didn't really feel that anti-Semitism was a major mainstream issue. And Corbynism showed us that that was not the case, that it was a mainstream issue. And even though he lost the last election, I believe it was 10 million people, 10 million British people voted for him, despite all of the press regarding his anti-Semitism. So I think we are in a particularly good place to not teach Americans, it's because everything differs, right? And the context is different, but certainly dialogue with. So I think I would say to American Jews who are worried is read about Corbynism. If you're able to reach out to Jews who experience Corbynism, look at the response of the Jewish community um, and understand the differences and nuances. You know, the British Labour Party is quite a different beast than the American Democrat Party. They, even their structures are different. Um, but still, we have to understand that what happened with Corbyn was a global issue. It was not a British issue. He was both a symptom and a cause. He was maybe a cause of it becoming more mainstream in Britain, but absolutely he was a symptom of a pre-existing problem, which is also evident in the United States. So I think kind of similarly to what I just said, people have to do their homework, people have to read, people have to look at the rhetoric which is being espoused and see where the American kind of problematic rhetoric is tying in with what Corbyn said or what Corbyn supporters said. Look at the similarities, read about him, read about the Corbyn project. But of course, understand the differences. You know, neither Eve nor myself are saying that it's the exact same. However, we are saying that what happened in Britain is not an isolated um, occurrence and that American Jews should be aware that there is a growing problem on the left with the legitimization, normalization of anti-Semitism. Right. And then uh, a, lot of, a lot of what happened in, in the UK was happening in the UK because obviously you said, you said 10 million people voted for him, so there's still an effect and you can still see it online. Um, it's very connected to, uh, and something else you talk about, like the rise of the Soviet form of anti-Semitism connected to anti-Zionism and how they can sort of like hide behind that. And so, so that connected to uh, another term that I want to go into what you've called the end of the golden age of mm. like, acceptance of anti-Semitism being bad. Do you think that it's connected to the Soviet anti-Zionism that has seeped into certain places like the UK? And, and is that connected to the end of the golden era or is it something else? I think everything is connected, right? I mean, nothing is happening in isolation. So absolutely, Soviet anti-Zionism has become 
a part of leftist ideology. Now we have to obviously kind of be nuanced and say, okay, not every leftist is an anti-Zionist. There are of course many Jewish leftists who are proud Zionist, but definitely we can say that it is a problem on the left. And I think probably the majority of the left. So yes, that is an issue. I think that the, the end of this golden age and you know, in my book, I even question whether there is a golden age. And I think somebody on Twitter said it wasn't a golden age, it was a guilt age. But regardless of what you want to call it, the end result was the same. There was a relatively short period of acceptance where Jewish people could assimilate, integrate, join the mainstream, seemingly free of anti-Semitism. Importantly, it was relatively short. The quotas um, regarding American universities and Jews were only taken away in the 60s. Um, so let's not pretend that this was happening for hundreds of years. The reason that happened or the reason this kind of period of acceptance happened, I believe, is because of post-Holocaust guilt. You know, the Brits, the Americans really strongly associated anti-Semitism with the Nazis. They fought the Nazis, so therefore they kind of wanted to distance themselves. Also, they had to grapple with the fact that they allowed it to happen. You know, we're not talking about the individual British or American citizens, but absolutely the British and American government's administrations during the war knew exactly what was happening. They knew that Jews were being murdered en masse. And even though um, the non-Jewish world is anti-Semitic, and what I mean by that is, you know, the structures and societies, not necessarily every individual person, but be that as it may, that's still a leap to millions of Jews being murdered. Just because someone kind of has absorbed tropes or stereotypes about Jewish people doesn't mean they're advocating for genocide. So people were really shocked and stunned by the murder of 6 million Jews, 1.5 million Jewish children in the middle of Europe, in the middle of the 20th century. So I think it's that shock led to this acceptance, but the further we get away from the Holocaust, the less guilt people have or the less guilt people want to have. And then also we do have this Soviet anti-Zionism, which um, you know, claims that it targets a sovereign state, not a tiny ethno-religious community. So people don't feel guilt about Jewish people or anti-Semitism. And then they're also very happy to kind of demonize Israel. But let's be honest, they're demonizing Israel as the collective Jew. So it's kind of an amalgamation of a lot of different things. You know, these things are very complex, multi-layered. As Shrek said, they're like an onion. But um, yeah, I think that this post-Holocaust golden age is over. And Jeffrey Goldberg, who's the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic magazine, who I think is great, wrote an article that came out in 2015 that was titled, Is It Time for the, Jew is it time for the Jews to Leave Europe? And this was in reference to the kind of rise in very shocking, aggressive, violent anti-Semitism that erupted in Europe, including Britain, during the um, 2014 war with Israel and Gaza. And I think that question is appropriate. I'm not advocating for Jews to leave, but I think it's important to discuss it. But I also think now that question applies to the United States as well. And I think that Jewish people should be considering um, whether they feel comfortable saying, and that's not me for one second saying they should leave. It's not me for one second saying that America is not, you know, overall safe for Jewish people. But I do think that what we have seen in America, in Britain, and other places should lead Jewish people to kind of at least considering purposefully um, where they call home. Yeah, 
Now onto the subject of Holocaust denial. As in it's also connected to this end of the golden age for sure. Yeah. Mm. Stats and trends are obviously frightening. Deborah Lipstadt famously tracked and called it out, called it out, out way before everyone else did. And people told her she was wasting her time. And now we're at an all-time high amongst Gen Z in the U.S. How how much is social media attributed to the spread of the of the range of Holocaust denial, and how do we move forward from an education standpoint? So I think the social media is allowing for you know many ideas to be spread both good and bad and yes we are seeing kind of um examples of posts which uh deem uh, you know how would we say it which um diminish the holocaust um absolutely i think i think social media is a part of that i think though what's more important is that gen z and millennials that claims conference poll was targeting both groups, um, they feel disconnected. They don't really understand the horror. They don't understand what happened. And they kind of see it as something that was, is not that important anymore. And then you see it start to being, you know, um, diminished or even manipulated as, uh, manipulated as an event. You know, recently in Britain, there is a kind of a fashion magazine called Grazia. And I believe recently they hired a woman um, who was like a famous activist. And in her past, she was found to have made comments saying that like, oh, people only really talk about the Holocaust because it's a white on white crime. So what we're seeing is also, you know, the Holocaust being understood through kind of very modern current ideas, which don't necessarily actually even represent our time properly. But for anyone who understands the Holocaust, you can't really call it a white on white crime. I mean, firstly, we need to have an, a proper discussion about whether light skinned Jews are white. Um, you know, that's a separate thing. But I think we're just seeing people not feel that it's relevant not feel that it's important certainly they don't feel um not that they necessarily should have any guilt as individuals but they don't see that their societies did anything wrong and they don't see it as anything as anything important basically especially when we consider this world we're living in where you know people don't understand different expressions of prejudice. They only understand prejudice to be, say, anti-Black racism or prejudice that targets, you know, my, minorities that are visibly um, different physically from the, minority, from the majority. So they don't understand that, you know, there were Jews living in Poland and Germany and wherever else who were Jews but may have been light-skinned, may have passed as French or German or Polish or whatever, but that didn't save them. Mm-hmm. But I think what they're doing is really trying to understand it using a model which doesn't fit. Going forward, what we have to do is really educate properly. I think that Holocaust education has been used um, in place of educating about anti-Semitism. I, and that's not to say that people in the past were wrong. I think that they thought, okay, we're going to educate about the Holocaust. This is a really important event. And they were right. And I think they thought that would lead people to being less anti-Semitic. And it has not. And I think what we have to do from an educational standpoint is tell the story of the Holocaust as part of the wider story of anti-Semitism. So my classes, for example, on the Holocaust, which last about three months, the first month is context. 
So the students are starting to understand different expressions of anti-Semitism, different categorizations, um, where these kind of categorizations have been most prominent, um, theories about why anti-Semitism has persisted so long in society. Yeah. Then we get to the 30s. Then we get to the Nazis. So yeah, 100% that context of like the Holocaust didn't just, yeah. six million Jews didn't just get murdered. It, it, it was a, it, you know, the, and, and when you look back, there was, there was different types of Holocaust. Uh, you know, we learned about it with, um, what's the guy's name in Ukraine in the 1600s. Oh, there was uh, not Kemal Kemalki. Yeah, Bodan Klemensky. Yeah, that was full on. That was like over four three hundred thousand Jews. Absolutely, and the pogroms, and then the right. Farhood, and then the expulsion of the Mizrahi Jews, and the Inquisition, and the way the Betty Israeli Jews. Mm -hmm. There is a global Jewish experience, and the Holocaust is one part of it. Right. And this is not for one second to diminish the importance of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. It was catastrophic for our people. And it affected all aspects of the Jewish world. You know, the, the Bet Israeli Ethiopian Jews experienced it through the Italians in Abyssinia, the Sephardic Jews in Greece, the Iraqi called, Jews. In Ethiopia, they were called, uh, was it, uh, Falashas? Falasha. People without a land. Yeah, and yeah. then in um, Iraq, you had the Farhud, and then also Dimi status, you know, previously. Anti-Semitism has been a feature of the Jewish experience forever. And... The Holocaust could not have happened without two, three thousand years of embedded systemic institutional anti-Semitism. And it has to be explained as such. And then most importantly, or no, I'd say equally as importantly, we have to show that the story of anti-Semitism did not end in 1945. People really believe that anti, I've been told by friends, mm. but anti-Semitism isn't a problem anymore, right? It finished after the war, which of course is ludicrous, but, they were never taught. So they were never taught about, you know, the persecution of the Soviet Jews. They were never taught about the expulsion of 850,000 Mizrahi Jews from the Middle East and North Africa for the rescue of Betty Israeli Jews, for the constant attempts to destroy the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. To, you know, the story of anti-Semitism did not begin with the Holocaust and it did not end with the Holocaust. And it's being written to this day. And that's what people need to understand. It needs to be framed properly in its context and that's why i'm so grateful at my school to have three months and i'm really allowed to do what i want basically and i say okay the first month is context before we even mention the nazis because the nazis core ideology they didn't even invent this idea of you know racial anti-semitism that was evident in spain and portugal following and during the inquisitions this idea that Jews who converted to Christianity were still kind of persecuted. And the 1506 Lisbon massacre targeted specifically conversos, so Jews who had converted to Christianity. And they used to then dig out the graves if they found out that they were like fake conversos and then burn them after death. Yeah, and they would burn them alive. So it's right. that, and that we, we can also consider that to be racial anti Semitism because even though they converted, they were still held with suspicion, still persecuted. Right. So nothing the Nazis said really was particularly right. original. They just really um, ramped it up a notch. The only thing maybe they said that was totally original was that the Jews all had to be murdered. It wasn't expulsion, it wasn't well, conversion. Haman there, Haman yeah, but you know, like yeah. from a modern historical yeah, context yeah, yeah. for 2000 years, there has been like no one that has done that. And probably also because they couldn't because of technology. Yeah, you yeah. know, 
England in 1290, they expelled the Jews because that was the limit of their power. That cannot really be compared with Germany in the middle of the 20th century, invading all of these countries and murdering in a kind of industrial way, six million Jewish people. 100%. You used to work as a director of the yeah. education of the hub. So now you're just mostly working in universities. Yeah, so I work, I'm, I'm the head of humanities at an international school here, and I also lecture part-time at universities. Got it. So what's the atmosphere towards Jews in Hong Kong, given that, you know, I'm not, say, I'm not saying that the Chinese government is in any way anti-Semitic, I don't have any evidence to suggest that, mm-hmm. um, but now that essentially Hong Kong, and you can talk a little bit about this, it's essentially under complete Chinese control, have, and if I'm wrong, let me know. Has the, has the attitude towards your program or the things that you do changed? You said you have complete freedom. Is there any control in that way? Yeah, so I actually cannot, we can't talk about that. Can't talk about that. So yeah. what I can talk about is um, what it's like to be a Jew in Hong Kong. Yeah. Being Jewish in Hong Kong is fine. You know, there's very little anti-Semitism. I wear a kippah every day. You know, at school the other day, there was a boy from Hong Kong and he asked me how I kept my little hat on. So that kind of gives you some idea of how much kind of knowledge there is about Jewish people. There are kind of evangelical Christians who are definitely philo-Semites who love Jewish people, but they don't really number a huge amount. Mm. I have experienced anti-Semitism, but from um, foreigners, from Brits, from Australians, People from the West, essentially, South Africans, um, but never from anyone from Hong Kong itself. And there's a Chabad and stuff like that? Yeah, there's a Chabad, there's a, you know, a Kosher Mart, there's a JCC, there's a Jewish school, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of Jewish life. Um, you know, there's the Holocaust Center. So yeah, it's, it's fine. It is a little isolating for sure. That's why I'm very glad to have Twitter and Instagram. And while I do have a couple of Jewish friends here, like for example, on Rosh Hashanah, I hosted with my partner um, the first night and I was the only Jew, you know? So that kind of gives you an idea that how isolated I am as a Jewish person. I'm very lucky to have very supportive friends, a very supportive partner. Um, But you of course want to be, you know, sometimes have conversations with Jewish people who just kind of understand what you're talking about. So the internet has been very helpful in that regard, but pretty much it's fine. I mean, I never feel, when I'm wearing my kippah, I never feel kind of anyone is giving me any grief. Mm -hmm. Got it. Cool. Interesting. Briefly mentioned earlier, when it comes to the history of the Holocaust, we rarely ever speak about how the Nazis impacted Mizrahi Jews, particularly in Iraq. We know they played a big role in, in the Farhud massacres of Shavuot in 1941 and the Northern African nations. Can you speak a little bit about how the Nazis persecuted Jews outside Europe and how we can do a better job of including Mizrahi Jews into Holocaust education? Absolutely. I think it also, I will say, it extends to Sephardic Jews too. I think that we primarily tell um, stories concerning Ashkenazi Jews. And like all discussions regarding Ashkenormativity, we have to be very sensitive and we cannot demonize, you know, the Ashkenazi Jews um, in this process. But absolutely, we should be doing a better job simply to understand the wider Jewish experience. The Farhud um, was definitely Nazi-inspired and I believe up to a thousand Jews were murdered. Um, It was incredibly violent and... um, 
it was incredibly shocking, I think, for the Iraqi Jewish community. I know Khen Mazig speaks a lot about it, and he is an amazing voice kind of speaking on behalf of the Mizrahi community. The Nazis also were in Tunisia, and there were Jews who died in bombing raids due to starvation, and also I think about 400 Jews were um, sent to forced labor. But also in Greece, in Salonika, you know, that was the kind of Sephardic capital of of Europe at that point, and that culture, those people, that culture, including Ladino, was totally destroyed. And I think what we have to do is just, just widen our, our gaze a little bit, because this is a story that affects all Jewish people, you know, the Holocaust, but also anti-Semitism in general. And I think it actually further emphasizes the point of the totality of the Holocaust by better understanding how it impacted Mizrahi Jews, Sephardic Jews, and even Beti Israeli Jews. And again, as I said, with regards to kind of their interactions with the Ethiopians after the invasion. Um, I think we just have to kind of record testimony like we've done um, a lot regarding kind of Ashkenazi Jews and also some Sephardic. We have to record testimony, speak to survivors while we can. But we also need to be giving space to scholars, you know, regarding these different issues and coming together. But also, I'm going to say, I don't think we understand the Ashkenazi story particularly well either. Mm. You know, there is this narrative that it was just Germany committing these crimes. That's not the case. The Germans had many collaborators in the Middle East, North Africa, in Southern Europe, but also in Central and Eastern Europe. So I think we have to do a better job of understanding every single story, but specifically, yes, absolutely, we have to do a better job of understanding Mizrahi stories, Sephardic stories, and Beti Israeli stories. So there's also a bright spot, and I know this because it's on our calendar. Uh, I'm just, I just Googled it to make sure that it was true, that um, I believe it was in, I'm not sure exactly which year, but the Moroccan king, Mohammed V, during World War II, told the Nazis that they couldn't take his Jews because they went wow. in and they were trying to deport Amazing. them. So, um, yeah, I could send you this link after, but, you know, when, when mm. obviously, you know, it's a known factor that as soon as Israel came around, all these Arab countries sort of said, like, you know, if you support Israel in any way, you're out. So um, it's also, it's, it's nice to see a bright spot of, like, institutional defense of mm. the Jews, especially a country like Morocco, where, you know, the Jews date back to the, to the Inquisition. Absolutely. So. And even the Albanian, the Albanian mm -hmm. Muslims also protected Jews. You know, I think, you know, we, we have to understand the nuance, the complexity. We have to understand, for example, the collaborations between the Palestinians with Al-Husseini and the Nazis. Yep. Um, that's really important. And we also have to understand, um, as you say, bright spots. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's really incredible. It's probably one of the most recorded, um, it was one of the most recorded events in human history because the Nazis kept so much, um, so many resources and, and, and so many statistics, but we're still learning. And we're in a, we're, we're in a race against time to kind of record the, record the testimony of survivors. And again, that must be extended to include survivors from all over, all over the world that experienced the Holocaust. But I think, you know, even the fact that we're talking about it and the fact that, you know, Ken talks about it and you know I talk about it in my classes I think that we're on the right track yeah with regards to widening the story 
hundred percent. What's one of the, I'm glad that you spoke about it because it's one of like the first things that we wanted to, we, we do like segments when it's just us two. And one of the deep dives that we wanted to do is, you know, Nazi intervention in places like Iraq where, you know, they took over the mm. embassy and they started, they, they, they translated Mein Kampf. They created a, a Nazi youth for the Iraqis and like all yeah. that was, all that was in the thirties. So again, context that leads to violence. Um, and also we can't understand that or even the expulsion of the Mizrahi Jews and Sephardic Jews from the MENA region if we don't understand the treatment of Jews in kind of Muslim lands for a thousand or so years. You know, if we, if we do, if we're saying the same about anti-Semitism in, in Europe, say, the same applies, you know, anti-Semitism was systemic, it was institutional, it was embedded. And that, of course, has impacted how these countries, how these societies view Israel. But we don't seem to make that connection. You know, they're not just anti-Semitic because the state of Israel exists. Right. The reality is they were anti-Semitic long, long before, and they were persecuting Jews in those lands for hundreds of years. Yeah, the demons, right? We've mentioned Israel, and now it's time we get a little bit into anti-Zionism, Zionism. So, as we all know, the IRA... Jew, sorry, the IRA definition of anti-Semitism includes um, anti-Zionism and debased criticism of Israel. So, because of course, any criticism of the of Israeli policy isn't inherently anti-Semitic, right? There's ways to go around it. So, but this works both ways. So, the same reason that we don't want to say that Israel's transgressions reflect on all Jews, we don't want to say that, you know. How do we? How do we draw? Was that? Yeah, this question's a little. At the same time, you don't want to say that Jews are, when Israel does something, the Jews are, all Jews are responsible for it, or the Jews, mm, that's something the Jews did, so. So how do we, how do we draw that line? Obviously, I'm talking yeah. about when you're having a conversation with a nuanced person and not somebody that's coming from a, right, from a, the wrong place. It is really complex. It's really complex because Israel is the Jewish state. It was in the, it's in the indigenous Jewish homeland, but it is also a sovereign state. So it's a political entity and it kind of makes its own decisions. And absolutely, Jews in the diaspora are not answerable for mm -hmm. the actions or policies of the Israeli government, just as, you know, Americans in Hong Kong are not necessarily, although that's also a bad example because they're, they were probably born in America. Yeah, listen, it's complicated. That Even there, it's complicated. You cannot necessarily compare it to other situations. But as a sovereign state, no, as Jews in the United States, a British Jew in Hong Kong, no, we're not answerable um, for the actions of the Israeli government. Um, so that's one thing we have to recognize. I don't think that people should start talking about learning about Israel if they don't know about anti-Semitism. Because Israel is often also viewed as the collective Jew, or, or rather it's treated as the collective Jew. So people need to understand kind of the manifestations of anti-Semitism. They have to understand that anti-Semitism is embedded, systemic, in a number of different parts of the world before they start engaging. Because as you said, it's not inherently anti-Semitic to criticize Israel, of course not. As a sovereign state, a political entity, locked in a long-running conflict, yeah, of course you should be able to criticize it. Mm -hmm. However, I would say the vast majority of criticism, slight, and I'm not talking, as you said, about anti-Zionism, we're talking about criticism, or, or statements which claim to be criticism of policy. The majority of those are also still often anti-Semitic. Not necessarily because the person is, is 
purposely being anti-Semitic, but because they're kind of engaging in classical anti-Semitic tropes and aren't aware of them. So I don't think that people, basically people should not talk about Israel unless they've done their homework. I also think that people should ask themselves why they care so much. Obviously it's important, but there's also a huge number of other important things taking place which also deserve attention. And it's not that we shouldn't talk about it, but you have to have proportionality. Um, so I'd say that it's diasporic Jews are not responsible for the actions or the policies of the Israeli state. It's funny how... Basically. Like, that was like a long way to answer yeah, the questions. Yeah, no, it's not good. So it's funny because like the, these conversations, when you talk to an Israeli, sometimes they'll be like, what are you talking about? Like, of course, of course I don't represent like an Israeli, like an Israeli type. They'll be like, oh, of, of course. course, I don't represent, you know, like, but like, and then in Jews in America or other places will like, will get all defensive and like you see on college campuses and they'll feel like it's all or nothing. If I don't, if I don't speak well about Israel right now, the state ends. And it's like, no, like take a step well, back. Well, like, but it's also hard because yeah. we are being abused every day and the focus of the abuse is Israel as, again, as I said, the collective Jew. So it's the Israeli experience is very different. Right. You know, as diasporic Jews, we see Israel being demonized delegitimized and being treated with double standards. So, of course, many of us want to defend it. Um, but that, that we want to defend every, every policy, every action. It, it's right. what we want to defend is that it's right to exist. So it's, it's very difficult. Israelis in Israel are facing their own threats. And also now probably with, you know, the rise of social media, they are interacting more with kind of Western diasporic, not even Western, excuse me, diasporic anti-Semitism because of social media. But I think traditionally their experience has probably been quite different. You know, my brother and sister have both made Aliyah. My brother was in the IDF for 10 years. And I remember during that war that I referenced earlier, the 2014 Israel-Gaza war, he called us, he was, his country was at war and he called us to ask how we were because they were seeing so much anti-Semitism. So there are two kind of experiences happening simultaneously. So I understand, you know, it's definitely true that Jews in the diaspora struggle to engage in conversations which are critical of Israel. And that's because they experience so much anti-Semitism and people don't want to add to the heap, which isn't right. You know, we should be having nuanced debate, dialogue on these topics. But when you're constantly faced with a barrage of hate, it becomes quite difficult. Yeah, like, like they say, BDS only affects Jews outside of Israel. Yeah, I mean, like, the only, like, you know, if an artist cancels, that sucks. But a lot of this stuff affects Jews outside of Israel. Israel is its own country, it's its own culture, mm -hmm. it's its own identity. And it is complicated. Because we, the last time there was a Jewish state or Jewish states, there were diasporic communities, but they were small. Now half of the, the Jews live outside of Israel, or just under half. So it is complicated. You have a Jewish state, but it's also a sovereign state. Right. And we're also citizens of America or Britain. So that can be complicated. When you think about bringing about a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, what is yours? Wow. <laughs> um, I, I believe... I would say a two-state solution, although I would, I'm, I've heard people talking about a three-state solution. Um, you know, Gaza being an independent state, the West Bank as Palestine, and then Israel. 
I think that we should be working toward, whether it's two state or three state, we should be working towards a sovereign or sovereign Palestinian state or slash state um, that is strong, that is stable. But I think we also have to ensure Israel's safety and security. And I don't believe that they're mutually exclusive. You know, we should be able to secure Israel or, or guarantee a secure Israel and also to create a strong, stable Palestinian state. Um, I also believe we have to have some honest conversations about anti-Semitism in Palestinian culture and the Palestinian leadership. And we have to have honest conversations about um, past actions done by both parties, right? You know, we have to have really kind of probably uh, on one level, a public reckoning of like, okay, this is really what happened on on both sides because you it's not enough that just the governments make peace. We need to kind of try, we have to try and... Um, combat the prejudice on both sides that exist towards the other. Um, but yeah, I think we have to have really honest conversations about anti-Semitism in, in the Palestinian yeah. kind of government leadership. So you think, I would you say. believe that talk of whether it be a two or three state solution cannot really happen in a good faith way until we have it or until we have an honest conversation about the history of anti-Semitism. Yes, but also other things, right? We have to prime the ground. You can't just go in for, for negotiations. You can't go in the, to talk about things without, you know, feeling that people are acting exactly as you said in good faith. But I think that uh, talking about anti-Semitism is one of those conversations. There's many things to talk about. Um, and that's not being had. That's one of the many conversations that's not being had when, when you know, peace talks. Are yeah, happening. I believe so. Yeah, I believe so because I don't think that people are necessarily holding the Palestinian leadership. We're talking about the leadership here, not the people responsible for the things that they have done and said. Um, you know, they also are actors in this conflict and they have agency and we can discuss how the Palestinian people have been subjugated and are oppressed. You know, that's, you know, totally fine conversations to have, but they have to be across the board. You know, you can enter into a conversation that doesn't recognize, you know, all of the truths, mm -hmm. you know, as we can't talk about just some of them. Yeah, I think a good example is like the aftermath of Oslo. It was, it was the Intifada, and then the wall goes up, and now Israelis don't ever interact with Palestinians because of yeah, because it was purely governments. And then you also see that with the peace with Egypt. Egypt is one of the most anti-Semitic countries in the world, and Jordan. You know, like although these Israel has peace with these countries, the people barely interact, and mm. and so and I think yeah. that. Right, we need to do a better job of like that starts with education and starts with more tourism and more like normalization, like really normalization, not just yeah. hey, we're gonna have embassies. And mm. so and and that's one of the this was a follow-up question that we had to this, but the UAE and Bahrain, I feel like you're mm. already seeing it's very very brief, but you're already seeing a level of like the citizens really do want to interact. Yeah. And and so so the question is about that is like, is this piece is this I mean, incoming piece of Bahrain, UAE, and other countries soon to come, is it real, is it different, or is it more of the same, in your opinion? I mean, it seems to be real. I mean, it seems, you know, I think an Israeli footballer just signed with a UAE team. You know, we saw Jews celebrating Sukkot in the UAE. I think it is real, and I think it shows that there is hope. But you're absolutely right, you know, 
there are deep wounds in this region and they're not solved with a band-aid. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to clean them out. We have to heal them. And that involves having honest conversations across the board. You know, I use that example of anti-Semitism and the kind of the Palestinian leadership is just one example, but there are many to be had. Um, but I would never say that I'm pro-Israel or pro-Palestinian. I think that's really reductive and very unhelpful. What I would say is that I'm, I'm a Zionist who is pro-peace. I believe in the Palestinian right to self-determination, just as I believe in the Jewish right to self-determination. And, you know, I think that that, is, that should be our focus. But I also think that we cannot rewrite history to justify kind of modern perspectives. History is history. You guys know this. You're the, on this day in Jewish history. Some things are historical truth. But that doesn't necessarily have to be changed, or it shouldn't be changed, shouldn't be tampered with to kind of justify modern positions. We should be able to kind of acknowledge the past while going forward. But I think it's about movement. It's about going forward. It's exactly, as you say, normalization. You know, there's peace between Israel and Egypt, but Egyptian magazines and newspapers and TV hosts still cite the protocols of the elders of Zion and still have accused Israel of causing AIDS at some point. You know, that's not peace. Or the Jews to, for causing AIDS. That's not peace. Or rather, it's, it's, it's a political peace. Right. Mary Weiss talks about how it's incredible that no Jews are in some of these countries and they're some of the most anti-Semitic countries. And Well, that's that fantastic um, yeah. clip by Hillel Neuer when he's at the UN and yeah. he says, they're accusing Israel of being an apartheid state. And he says, well, where are your Jews, Egypt? Mm -hmm. You had X number of hundreds of thousands of Jews. Where are they? Iraq, where are they? Algeria, where are they? How can we possibly talk about peace if we do not acknowledge that? If we do not acknowledge the great crimes committed against Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews? How? We can't. We have to have honest conversations. And that's not to demonize or blame. It's to say, okay, this happened. We recognize it. We're sorry. It was a symbol of whatever culture existed at that time, but we are working on changing it, or it is different. You can't, like, how can we possibly have conversations without acknowledging the, the past? And also it's the same for Israel. You know, Israel mm -hmm. has to acknowledge what it's done wrong and Israel has to acknowledge, you know, where it could have done better. Right. You know, you, you, it, I think that, yeah, exactly as you said. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm good. It's exactly as you said, Isaac, it's about good faith. People have to come to the table in good faith. And that means willingness to compromise and willingness to recognize, acknowledge, and apologize. Yeah. And I think that that's uh, something, and we, we have a joke, he gets, he gets mentioned every episode, but Rudy Rachman, <laughs> oh, yeah. he, he talks a lot, he, he works for something called uh, uh, the, the Home, something like that, the Jalum Home, forget the name exactly, I'm butchering it for sure, but he basically comes together with actual Palestinians and they have yeah. conversations and they have, and they try to like do community, community outreach and they, and they do things like cleanups and, yeah. and that's, and that's something that, you know, the wall that had to go up, it had to go up and it basically eliminated yeah. suicide bombings. But the, the other side of that is like now Israelis and Palestinians really don't interact with regular people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's sad because, um, you know, how to, that's like, it's tough, but. Yeah. yeah, and we also can acknowledge how that wall saved Israeli lives mm -hmm. and basically stopped suicide bombings, but still has massively impacted Palestinian lives. We can, right. we can tell both truths. 
We do not need to just tell one. Actually, we have to tell both truths. To move forward in any kind of good faith, we have to tell both truths, tell both experiences, because both experiences are valid. And, you know, Rudy Rockman is always sharing messages that he receives from Palestinians mm -hmm. who are thanking him, who... Um, are reaching out and it's amazing because the reality is we're cousins yep. you know if we're talking about jewish shared ancestry that ancestry originated in the levant in the middle east and we are connected to we're cousins with the palestinians Isaac and, and yeah precisely you know we have to move forward but we have to feel that our grievances are being heard on both sides and we also have to be prepared to be told, actually, you need to, you know, compromise. Listen, I'm not an expert on the Israel-Palestinian conflict by any means, but this is just something I have seen, I've observed, observed over the years of kind of what has happened, what has transpired. Right. So we're sitting with Ben Freeman, Jewish activist, educator. You can find Ben on Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Ben M. Freeman and soon to be on your bookshelf. So let's talk about your book. What's the title? Um, and, and people can pre-order it, right? Yeah, and why don't we have autographed copies? <laughs> What's the I promise you'll get. <laughs> What's the elevator pitch? So my book is called Jewish Pride Rebuilding a People, and it aims to inspire, empower, and educate Jews to reject the shame of anti-Semitism, to reject non-Jewish perceptions of what it means to be a Jew, and ultimately to begin the process of defining Jewish identity as proud Jews through an exploration of Jewish history, Jewish experience, and Jewish values. When we talk about anti-Semitism, we're obviously talking about legal discrimination. We're talking about pogroms, mass murder, expulsion. But what we don't talk about very often is how we, as Jews, are shamed by anti-Semitism as well. You know, we're living, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about Corbyn and the Democrats. The reality is what we're experiencing now is not like um, things that Jews experienced in the past. It is not a Holocaust. It's not an Inquisition. It's not a, you know, expulsion. But we are being shamed all the time. There are, I'm a very proud Jew, but there have been times in my life where I have braced for impact before telling people that I was Jewish. And Jewish people have tried to fit in, we've tried to assimilate or integrate, whatever you wanna call it, in a desperate need to be accepted. And we change ourselves. As I said at the beginning, you know, there is this notion that Jewish, the Jews are a solely religious group. That's not true. One of the reasons that idea came about was to circumvent anti-Semitism. So we change ourselves, we beg to be accepted. Has the non-Jewish world accepted us? No, not really. It's a toxic relationship. And it's not that we're rejecting the non-Jewish world. Absolutely not. I'm not advocating for one second for Jews to leave the diaspora. I'm not advocating for one second for Jews to live as isolated, ghettoized communities. But I'm saying we should interact, but as proud Jews, not willing to kind of warp or alter our Jewishness to be accepted. We should demand to be accepted as we are. And we can both accept be, we can both accept who we are, and refute. But while also assimilating into mm -hmm. diasporic communities, those aren't inherently oppositional. 
No, I, I, would, I would probably say not assimilate because that actually means to shed identity, but absolutely we can integrate 100%. We can live as Americans or Brits or the French, wherever, but only if they allow us to, and they don't. They don't allow us to live peacefully. You know, we're Jews from the United States, right? And Britain, I live in Hong Kong, and we're having another conversation about anti-Semitism. So no matter how hard we try, they don't accept us. So there's two things that need to happen. We need to kind of find the collective and individual self-esteem to engage uh, proudly, but they need to solve anti-Semitism. Because let's be clear, anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem. It is the non-Jewish problem that impacts us. So they have work to do and we have work to do. And then we can come together. You know, I think it's something that I've seen online is that Jews have been crying out for pride. And it's rooted, the book is rooted in my experience as a gay man and how I became comfortable and proud of my LGBTQ plus identity through pride. You know, it's probably not surprising to many people that I suffered um, from kind of quite severe mental health issues because of societal homophobia. And I had to do a lot of work to overcome that and, and arrive at pride. And Jewish people also need to do that work. And we should be permitted we should be given permission we should be supported in doing that work because we're people just like any other and we shouldn't feel ashamed of ourselves well, don't you give you yourself permission though as well yes you absolutely do but i sometimes think you have to be reminded that you can if you're someone who's lived your whole life in a world telling you a specific thing about your identity you can believe it we internalize all of the things that go on around us. So sometimes you need something or someone to jolt you out of that kind of mindset and say, actually, you should be proud of yourself. You should love yourself. You should value who you are and be unwilling to change to be accepted. You should be accepted as exactly as you are. Part of a recurring conversation here at the Two Told Jews show, we'd like to bring up the word anti-Semitism. Now, from a historical mm. perspective, anyone who knows the word's origins is, is aware of its anti-Jewish intention. Mm. Uh, you know, you know Wilhelm, Wilhelm Marr sort of coining the term as sort of a byproduct of the post-Enlightenment racial pseudoscience that was permeating throughout Europe at the time as a way of sort of further ghettoizing Jews from the rest of the mainstream. Do you think the word uh, should be changed to anti-Jewish prejudice, Judeophobia, or an, sort of a similar, uh, you know, a, uh, a different word? Or do you think that the word, in fact, does not do more harm than good? It's such a good question. Um, I'm trying to start a movement. Yeah. <laughs> yes, theoretically, of course it should be changed. I think we should call it anti-Jewish racism because um, what we experience is racism. So when someone is anti-Semitic to me, I call them a racist because that's what they are. Racism does not have to mean anti-black racism. It can Often you know, called, also target it's, it's the, uh, you know, something Jewish that I... People and many other groups as well. Um, so I believe it should be anti-Jewish racism. Is this the hill I think that we should die on at the moment? No, not necessarily. I think that there are kind of bigger fish to fry. But yes, it is a conversation that should be rumbling, absolutely. And I did have a section in my book about it. It was cut, unfortunately, just because of word count. But yeah, I think that, you know, I, I do think that, I don't think it does more harm than good. I don't think it, it continues. I don't think people see it as this intellectual thing that it was intended to be. However, I do think 
the fact that it's so separate, it sounds so different from say anti-Asian racism, anti-black racism, etc., um, doesn't necessarily help. It doesn't mean that that is not the reason people don't consider prejudice that targets Jews to be illegitimate. That's not the reason. But it might play a factor just in some process of kind of like understanding it to be a form of racism. So yeah, I think we should call it not Judeophobia, um, not maybe Jew hate, but that's such an ugly sounding thing. I think anti-Jewish racism. I think in my book, I flip flop between, I primarily call it anti-Semitism just because that's the word we're working with. Um, but I also do call it anti-Jewish racism. Yeah. I mean, you said that you don't think this is the hill Jews should die on. For the Jews that want to die on this hill, do you think that <laughs> this could ironically sort of perpetuate more anti-Semitism? Oh my God, leave it to Jews to say the term that, you know, I, I feel like <sighs> it creates sort of like this repetitive sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you know, Jews want to criticize the nature or the rhetoric behind the anti-Semitism that just perpetuates more anti-Semitism. Oh. Um, yeah. I think, you know, Screw those who say that. <laughs> we get to define our own identities. We get to define the word that describes the hate that targets us. If you guys want to call it anti-Jewish racism, then, then, then let's do that. It's we get to decide. I don't care, like, I don't care what the non-Jewish world say about it. So I would say to those who are afraid of kind of changing the word or, or using a different word and they're afraid, afraid of it causing more anti-Semitism, I would say nothing that we do really causes anti-Semitism. The non-Jewish world, they don't need, they're, they're not basing their hatred of Jews on the actions of Jews. They're basing their anti-Semitism, their hatred of Jews on per, their perceptions of Jews. So just like we get to define our own identities, we also get to define the word that describes the hate that targets us. So I think that if this is something you guys are really passionate about, or if people out there are really passionate about, then go for it. Don't worry about it. Like we shouldn't be worrying about whether our actions are going to increase anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism is not about our actions. It's not about us. It's about non-Jewish perceptions of us. It was a word intended to kind of legitimize, intellectualize the word Judenhass, Jew hate. Mm. So I think we are well within our rights to reject that word, regardless of whether it's been used for 140 years, yeah. and choose our own. I have to say that in my book, you know, I didn't, I, I wrote the book and I thought about this towards the end, and I was like, do I just like do control F? <laughs> and find every time it says anti-Semitism and change it to anti-Jewish racism. And yeah. I realized I'm not going to do that because that's quite an elevated conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that we cannot be having that conversation without people actually understanding just the basic categorizations of whatever it is you want to call it. Yeah. But I do think it's a conversation that should be had. Given also... This is the final point. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it here. But how people argue about how to spell it with the hyphen, with the capital oh, yeah. S, with the lowercase s. No hyphen. No hyphen, lowercase s. No yes. Because it's. No hyphen. Yeah, exactly. It is the word used to describe a hatred of Jews. Mm -hmm. Just as homophobia is the word used to describe a hatred of gay people or perhaps LGBTQ plus people. So there is no hyphen lowercase s and i would probably say lowercase a but 
I kind of don't actually care about that that much. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's absurd. Yeah. We get to have these conversations. These are Jewish conversations to have. And then, yeah, we can set the tone. So if I, as a Jew, spell anti-Semitism uh, with no hyphen and with a lowercase s, then I expect non-Jewish people interacting with me to do it too. But this is the major problem. First of all, you know, we're kind of talking about educating non-Jews, right? And saying, okay, if we spell it in a certain way, then they should spell it in a certain way. That's fine. But we also first need to look at our own community and we need to educate our own about, okay, that's why spelling it anti-Semitism is a problem. Mm -hmm. I still see kind of major Jewish publications spelling it that way, which I find to be ludicrous. Yep. Unfortunately. You know, the great minds have talked about this. And we as a community need to come to a consensus. That is very difficult for us, as we know. Um, but yeah, I think it, the, all of these conversations start internally. And listen, it's not like we're gonna then, you know, issue a statement to the non-Jewish world and say, press release, the Jewish people decide to call it anti-Jewish racism end. Like, it's hard yeah. because we're not a monolith. But yeah, I think that we sh it's more about creating cultures or creating norms. Yeah. So last question, this is the Best Shot Productions question. If you had a gigantic billboard that you could put anything on and millions and billions of people could see it, what would it say and why? So does it have to be, how long can it be? <laughs> One it's more. a billboard, so I guess not that long. It yeah. could be digital, it could be, you could do. I would say. It's a, it's a fantasy billboard. It's a fancy billboard. So, that, so just to be clear, you're not giving me a billboard. <laughs> <laughs> we're giving you okay. We're um, giving you. We're giving you an Instagram account, and we're giving you <laughs> a million followers for a day. Yay! And you can put a post. Um, <laughs> post. I would say Jewish pride. Just Jewish pride, because I think we have to be um, open to the fact that that is going to look different to different people. Um, we're not a monolith. But I think that it's something we should all feel, we should all embody in our own unique ways. And yeah, I would just say Jewish pride. I think, I think honestly, this is one of the biggest challenges facing Jewish people today, a lack of pride, a lack of individual and collective self-esteem specifically regarding their Jewishness. And I think that we need to create a movement created generations of Jewish people who never see their Jewishness as a source of shame and who always see it as a source of pride. So I think just... Thank you so much for having me.